This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. Welcome, everybody. Good to have you here. Welcome to the Goldman School of Public Policy and to our beautiful building. This is an 1893 fraternity house that we are lucky enough to have. The school started here in 1969 as the Graduate School of Public Policy, and around 1996 became the Goldman School of Public Policy. Uh, we're really pleased today to have a group of people to discuss uh, important issues in higher education, uh, specifically student loans. Um, I see some students in the audience. I'm sure you're well aware of the issues surrounding this topic uh, and the fact that we've had accelerating student loan debt, and it's a problem in America. And what I'm going to do is just uh, tell you a little bit about why it's a problem uh, after I've introduced each of our three guests. I'm just going to do a brief overview, and then we'll turn to each person. So our three panelists who will talk about these issues. First, you'll hear from Congressman Mark Desaulnier, California's 11th congressional district, which is basically over the hills in Contra Costa, right? If I've got it right. He serves on the Committee on Education and the Workforce, as well as the Committee on Oversight and Government Reform, which has been doing exciting things recently in Congress, if you've been following the Planned Parenthood discussions. Um, Congressman Desaulnier started his career as a small business owner, so he actually knows he's created jobs. You've actually I'm a job created creator. jobs. Um, and he also cares about government and making government work better, hence he's on the government uh, Committee on Government Reform. Uh, he's been in public service for 25 years, serving as California State Senator and a member of the State Assembly. Then you'll hear from UC Berkeley Administrative uh, Perspective from Ann DeLuca, our Associate Vice Chancellor for Admissions and Enrollment since 2011. She oversees undergraduate admissions, financial aid, and scholarships, so she knows all about student loans. Um, and she has over 20 years of professional experience in student services and enrollment management, having worked at both the University of Arizona and Southern Illinois University in the past. Finally, since we're talking about student debt, we should hear from a student. Anthony Abril is also here to provide his perspective as a Cal student. Anthony is a fourth-year sociology major and education minor. He's also a financial aid recipient. I assume that's been cleared that I can say that. Yes. <laughs> Uh, Anthony's goal is to establish resources for students who experience challenges uh, like financial insecurity uh, and homelessness. Believe it or not, on this campus, we have students who, because it's expensive to go to school, and in some cases because they're also sending money home to their parents to help support their parents, they find themselves in situations where they simply don't have enough money to actually eat well and to, to live decently. So that's just really a very distressing kind of problem. Uh, he is, serves on the Financial Aid Division, uh, and he's director in the ASUC Student Advocates Office. Uh, Anthony, oh, your senior thesis is on FAFSA, uh, which, of course, <laughs> everybody knows FAFSA. This is the form you fill out to get student aid. Uh, so you're learning about the details of that as a sociologist. Let me just say a little bit about higher education in America right now and where we are. First, why is higher education important? Well, it's very simple. Uh, unemployment among college graduates is lower than unemployment among other sectors of the population. College completion means something like one to two million dollars more in lifetime earnings. By any estimate you can possibly do, it's worth it to go to college if you complete, especially if you complete. If you don't complete it, it's a little more problematic. So that's why college completions are very important. And that's why financial aid is important, because that's one of the factors that has the biggest impact on college completions. But if you go to college and complete, you're going to make a lot more money uh, on average. And even most people, not just on average, but almost everybody will do better with a college degree than not. And furthermore, we'd also like to think, and I think it's true, you'll be a better educated citizen and more able to contribute to your community in lots of other ways as well. So college is worthwhile. Anybody who tells you it's not hasn't really looked at the data and doesn't really understand what college education is about. 
And also, since I'm at a public university, I want to mention that about 75% of the enrolled students in the United States are at public institutions. So public institutions are fundamental to the education sector. Uh, public institutions also typically provide the most accessible education in terms of cost. Uh, we're certainly true our tuition has gone up, but we're still at $12,000 base tuition, about $3,000 in fees, compared to Stanford, which is $45,000 and most privates in the forty-five dollars to $55,000 range. So we're a lot cheaper even on the sticker price than those places. And furthermore, as you'll hear with our financial aid programs, we actually make it possible for lots of different people to go to Cal. And in fact, we have a larger fraction of Pell Grant recipients than Stanford uh, and then uh, most of the, in fact, I think all of the Ivies. And we actually have, at one time at least, had more Pell Grant recipients than all the Ivy League schools put together. So, and at one point we had more, and I don't know if these statistics still hold, we had more Pell Grant recipients than the entire undergraduate student body at Stanford. So that just tells you how important public institutions are for accessibility of higher education. But, in the last decade, there's been a tremendous decline in state funding. It's declined 30% since 2000. It's declined more in California. We've been one of the harder-hit states. Higher education's share of general fund spending across all the states went from 14.6% in 1990 to 9.4% in 2014. So basically, we're getting a smaller and smaller share of the general fund expenditures of all the states. Um, also, during that same period, in many states, corrections spending increased dramatically. And in fact, from 1986 to 2013, Higher education spending in adjusted, inflation-adjusted dollars increased by 5.6%, not really much over that many years. Corrections spending increased by 141%. Corrections, by the way, spends about $50,000 per enrollee. Uh, in uh, the, uh, the prison system that's run in California, we get about $10,000 per student from the state. Uh, I have, uh, in a sort of Swiftian, uh, modest proposal, proposed that, in fact, perhaps Berkeley should become a prison. We would get more state funding. Uh, and at $50,000 per student, I think we could do a really grand job of educating our students. And I would guarantee that they wouldn't have any student debt as a result. Uh, unfortunately, uh, there are some defects in that proposal, as I understand it. But nevertheless, it is, it's indicative of misplaced priorities, though. Something's wrong when corrections has increased by that much. I mean, one way to put it is some young people go to college and some young people go to prison. It's bad that so many go to prison. And it's good that people go to college, but it's bad that support for those students who do go to college has been diminished by the fact that we've put so many people in prison. There's just something fundamentally wrong there. And by the way, I think there's agreement left and right more and more that we got something really wrong here and we've got to do better at this. So state institutions have increased tuition because there's been state cutbacks in support. There's just no other way to move forward. Uh, on average... State institutions since about 2008 have not increased tuition any more than the cutbacks that have occurred. So it's not like state institutions have suddenly become more expensive and spendthrift and are wasting their money. It's just that we have to have money to educate students. The state's taken it away from us. We've gone to students with increased tuition. Indeed, Cal, as far as I can tell from the data I've looked at, the IPEDS data, has actually increased tuition less than the diminution in state funding. So in fact, we're actually providing an even better product, or, or the same product or a better product, um, with less expenditure per student. So we're doing a great job in terms of costs and trying to deliver a good product. I often say we deliver a Cadillac product at a Chevy cost and price even still. That's pretty impressive. Still. These tuition increases have fallen heavily upon students. Uh, as a result, especially with the middle class income stagnant, with lower class incomes not doing well, it's increasingly difficult for families to get students through college. Students are hit very, very hard. Student debt as a result has increased. There's over $1 trillion in student debt now. Many students leave college with debt of $25,000 or more. That's not good 
what you'll hear from in DeLuca is that, in fact, we're doing pretty well at Cal with respect to that, considering all the pressures on us. But it would be great if we could do even better. And that's why it's great to have our mem a member of Congress here to talk about what we might do in this arena to try to make things even better. So, Mark Desaulnier, welcome. Thank you. Um, I'm not going to get up because uh, I'm tethered to my, sh my chair and I don't want to move around too much. Um, well, first of all, I want to thank the Chancellor's Office for arranging this and, uh, and inviting me and uh, Dean Brady and uh, the Goldman School. The last time I was here, I think I was with uh, my former colleague, Lonnie Hancock, who represents this area in the State Senate. And uh, it was 2008 when we were going through those horrible cuts um, so it's nice to be back. I have been back for other instances on other campus since then, but uh, I remember that one well. And um, I will say I'm a former Berkeley restaurant owner. I used to own a, a restaurant on University Avenue, the Santa Fe Bar and Grill years ago, and it's now a higher use, as land use people would say. It's a Montessori school. So, <laughs> um, so it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, I want to talk about the bill we've done, but in the context of how things have changed um, since I applied for college, and I'll date myself, uh, and how it applies to the bill. So the bill actually is a bill that um, is, very, is almost exactly the same, except where the money is being used, that I did in the state Senate, um, that a very uh, well-known um, professor at this uh, school uh, was a big part of, uh, the, Secretary of Labor, the Labor, Secretary of Labor, Bob Reich, worked with us on a bill that we did in uh, the state Senate, and unfortunately I needed 27 out of 40 votes to get it off the Senate floor, and I couldn't get any Republican votes, and I lost some Democratic votes. But what it did was, in 1970, uh, the average compensation for a publicly traded chief executive officer of a corporation in the United States had averaged for many years, decades, about 20 times over their median worker. Um, we have very boring graphs we can show you about how that's changed to now it's almost uh, 300, it's over 300 times. So what the bill did in its original incarnation was, um, is a sliding scale. We're depending on how much the CEO is compensated beyond their um, median uh, employees and its worldwide employees, you would charge them a higher rate, a, a corporate tax. So in California, they all have to file. If you sell something in California and you have revenue, so it's not about a company leaving the state, all publicly traded companies want to sell their product here because this is the biggest market in the United States. So um, that, that's the revenue side of it. But what I decided to do when I got in Congress was where that money went to originally was just back to the general fund um, in, in, in California. So in Congress, what this bill does that we just, uh, I put in Friday into the hopper. There actually is a hopper in Congress. It's a little box. Um, it's a big success for a freshman to get it in the right box. Um, so what we do with the revenue, which would be significant until hopefully the behavioral corporations would change, is it goes to make sure that every uh, federal loan for higher education is no higher than the prime rate. And the argument is the idea is we don't charge banks higher than the prime rate because it stimulates the economy. There's plenty of research that would indicate this is as important when it comes to stimulating the economy. Um, so that's what it would do. Um, back to 1970, when I applied for college, um, the the United States was by far and away the, the number one in the world in producing college graduates. We're now 14th in the world in producing college graduates. And that's as a percentage because obviously we're a large company in the, in the total. Um, and the average cost for a year of undergraduate school was $2,000 a year. Um, so it's now, if it just, uh, if it just had, had improved that $2,000 in, for inflation, it would be $10,000. And obviously, it's much more than that. So all of those things have conspired, along with the fact that many people in my generation, I have a 30-year-old son and a 33-year-old son, um, who are, I always re remind them that they got out of college without loans, but it affected mom and dad a little bit, not that it was a bad investment. Um, but then both the parents are, uh, we make less in terms of real earnings, um, as, as Professor Reich talks about, and um, uh, Mr. Stiglitz, Dr. Stiglitz, I should say, and others, is that our wages have been flat for so long. So you've got this perfect world, and then um, not to be too depressing, when you graduate, your ability to get uh, the kind of income that I was able to get in my generation when we got out of college is restricted. So... That's all in the context of a 
larger argument that in a knowledge-based economy, there's nothing more important to deal with inequality and poverty, which has grown in this state, in this country, than providing people with knowledge and getting them in education. So uh, it's clearly an issue nationally. Polling will tell um, all of us that um, Republicans and Democrats think it's a big issue, access to higher education, uh, and that we need to do something about it. So we've had a number of bills. Almost all of them have been offered by the uh, minority party um, and, to be honest, haven't gone very far to try to help with that a couple recent ones are allowing you to refinance um, your debt over time so that you, you can refinance a house. If you get out and you're having cash flow problems, why can't you go back and refinance your student loan? Another one, because of what the privates have done, the private for-profit corporations. And I'll leave you in 2000 of the 25 um, in institutions for higher learning who top 25 based on how much debt they had given out. There was only one for-profit publicly traded um, school. Now there are nine of the top 11 are all for-profit schools. Um, Corinthian, which is, we've got plenty of research that showed that they were using, um, they were redlining, they were going to people who were very vulnerable to get them to take on debt. All of those things have combined for this sort of perfect storm that in order for our economy to really continue to try to grow and try to get to 6% or 5%, we need to provide more people access to higher education. So I'll stop there. I'll look forward um, to any of your questions. And I'll just end with saying it's great to be here in a football factory. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you, uh, Congressman, and thanks to Dean Brady. I appreciate being included today. Uh, I think uh, you heard some early remarks about Berkeley's success in this space, and we're certainly proud um, that Berkeley uh, has done as much as it's been able to do to support access to uh, an excellent education for all of our students. Um, I think it's important to note that there are many public universities that provide strong access to low-income students. I think what's unique about Berkeley is that for an institution of our selectivity and our prestige that we're able to have a high number of low-income students and first-generation students who have quite a low level of borrowing compared to the national average. And that's part of our commitment um, that we have in our philosophy uh, in the financial aid office and on campus. Um, 42% of Californians who attend Berkeley are Pell Grant recipients. So it's a very strong number, and it's an important foundation of our commitment to access for Californians. Um, Just over 4 in 10 of our undergraduate students currently borrow student loans to help finance their education. And for those who borrow, the average cumulative debt when they graduate is uh, right now about $17,500 total. And you heard earlier that the national figure is close to $25,000 for schools like ours. So we are really striving to maximize the way in which we use financial aid to support students and try to keep their debt levels as reasonable as we can. That said, um, loans are still an important mechanism for students and for families to help finance higher education, uh, and we want to provide um, opportunities for students and their families to make good choices when they have to select student loans to help finance their education. I think you already heard the information about returns on investment, and so this can be a very smart strategy for students who need to finance their education in this way and um, can expect a strong return once they graduate. Um, So we're certainly supportive of anything that can help make loans and, and by extension, uh, completion of their education more affordable and allows alumni to be fully contributing members of the economy in the country more quickly. So um, I think, you know, Interest rates for you, if you're borrowing, are based on the the state of the economy at the time that you made that borrowing decision. Um, And this uh, bill and and ideas around it help to really support fairness and um, equity for students by allowing them to reset their loans. And so we're certainly in support of its intent. And I'm very pleased that we have a current student here who can speak very eloquently about his experience uh, here at Berkeley, and, and we're glad to have you join us. Thank you very much, and thank you to the Congressman's Office and for the Golden School for inviting me here as well. Uh, I'm going to be talking a little bit about the student experience with financial aid and student loans. Uh, financial aid is a pretty big part of my life. I'm a financially independent student, 
And for those of you who don't know what that means, uh, I'm exempt from inputting the parent section on the FAFSA due to extreme family circumstances. so as an independent student, paying for college is all on me and the, whatever I'm offered in my financial aid package. I'm offered a combination of grants and loans to pay for tuition, fees, and other expenses, and I've worked the entire time that I've been in college. Without the support of our government, without UC Berkeley, I wouldn't be where I am today. Uh, not only do I receive financial aid, but I direct a team of students who assist other students when they have financial aid problems on our campus. I've also worked as a college advisor uh, with a nonprofit in Oakland, so I've talked with high school students about their fears for paying, as, paying for college as well. When students come to me to talk about student debt, uh, usually it's out of fear, uh, and usually they come to me and fall into one of two categories. A uh, student is either extremely afraid of student loans and will do anything they can to avoid them, even if that means putting off going to school, um, or they were uninformed and could have made more informed borrowing decisions while they were in school. Uh, with, especially with recent debates over UC tuition, which is set to rise again for all of us in 2017, uh, more students across the nation are asking themselves, how are we going to pay for this? And the answer is increasingly becoming student loans. I'm a senior now, so I know exactly how much I'll be graduating uh, with debt, $24,700. My number is a little bit higher than Berkeley's average, and as an independent student, I actually take out all the subsidized loans that I'm offered um, because I don't have another cushion. So it's my way of kind of preparing for emergencies on the side. Uh, Also as a senior, I'm currently trying to figure out what I'll be doing next year. Uh, I'll probably be working in education research or policy, but ask me again in a few months or talk to me after this panel. (laughs) Um, But in all seriousness, I probably won't be making the same salaries as some of my peers in the Haas School of Business or College of Engineering. Um, I also hope to go to graduate school, so that $24,700 is only going to increase. Um, Before I got really involved with financial aid and student debt on our campus, I didn't know how student loans worked, and I was really afraid of my ability to go do work in something that I cared about um, and being able to pay back my loans for these four years. Uh, But I know my options, uh, public service loan forgiveness, uh, income-based repayment plans, this new legislation that we're going to see now. uh, And so I know that I will be able to do the work that I care about without having to worry about unreasonably high monthly payments. But I'm not the typical student. I meet with our financial aid administrators all the time for my work on our campus. Um, most, students loan about their stu- most students learn about their student loans through Google, uh, word of mouth, and um, federal counseling. Uh, unfortunately, our federal loan counseling leaves a lot of students uh, unprepared for life with student loans. Uh, many students, including myself, Uh, don't remember all the details from their entrance counseling. And if this program was more engaging, entrance counseling could serve as a really useful tool to help students better inform their borrowing decisions while they're still in in school. Um, And while I haven't done my exit counseling yet, I have discussed with many friends about how uh, that program is insufficient to prepare them for life with loans. In fact, I've gotten emails from graduated peers asking me to encourage Berkeley to pilot its own exit loan counseling program. with an emphasis on teaching students about their options, uh, how much each loan's interest is, uh, tactics to pay back your loans as quickly as possible, and all the different payment plans that exist. With the current system, students graduate and they learn to pay back their student loans by trial and error, uh, with the errors often being costly fees and unnecessary stress. If we want college graduates to truly improve their lives and our world after they finish college, we need a student loan system which provides reasonable payments and prioritizes the borrower. Many of you know it's hard to be a student. Uh, We're expected to take at least 13 units a semester, and at this university, that's countless hours of readings, problem sets, and midterms. I have two next week. Uh, (laughs) On top of that, we pile on extracurriculars and internships so that someone might find us employable after four years. Uh, (laughs) Plus, we're expected to (laughs) prioritize our physical and mental health, uh, and we have to somehow maintain a social life. It's hard enough to be a student, but it's especially hard when we feel like the rest of our working lives will become dedicated to paying back for these four years. Uh, it's hard to be a student when the common feeling is that the state's disinvesting and that the federal government's doing things like canceling the Perkins Loan Program. Uh, we need policymakers to pay attention to what our students need, and if more of our students are becoming borrowers, then we need student loans that will allow us to thrive in our economy, in our respective communities, and the ambitions that we decide to pursue. Thank you. Thank you. 
Uh, so we're going to have a little bit of discussion here, and then we'll open it up in about 10 minutes uh, for your questions from the audience. Let me start with a question uh, to you, uh, Congressman. Can you say a little more about exactly how your bill will help on the student side? What is it doing exactly to make it easier for students to go to college? So I, I think right now the average interest on a student loan is four and a quarter, four fifty. Um, it would reduce it based on the prime rate right now that the Fed loans money to banks to the same prime rate, which would be 0.75. So depending on the size of your loan, that would help bring the cost down. And can either of the other two panelists say something about how much impact you think that kind of program would have uh, for students? I, I, it may be hard to do the calculations yeah. in your head quickly, but do you have any sense about, does that sound like, gosh, that'd be really great, that would help a lot? Or, I mean, it's, it's getting the, the interest rate down darn near zero. Lowered interest sound fa- sounds yeah. fantastic to me. Yeah. Uh. yeah, I think, you know, over the lifetime of a loan, it could um, equal over $1,000, I would imagine. D- again, it depends on the, the rate the student borrowed and the size of the loan when they leave, but um, I think it could make a substantial difference for repayment. And it's, it sort of combines, Dean, with the other efforts we've made, particularly allowing students to refinance their loans. So if the prime goes up, you could go back and just like you could with a house, and it's a fixed rate. So when you get, when you went under this bill, once you got your loan, it wouldn't go up um, unless you tried to refinance it. And obviously, you'd only try to refinance it most likely if um, it was advantageous to you. So where do you think the general mood of the – actually, I don't want to get too deeply into the general mood of the Congress. But on this particular topic, do you think uh, – you said something before that you thought there was pretty widespread agreement that this is an issue and something has to be done. Do you have any sense of where we might be going with respect to that? Well, if we want to talk about the general mood no, of the Congress, don't. we need a couch here and much longer than the time we have. Um, I will, not to be too partisan, but I think the majority party is sort of locked in – um, the size of the federal deficit and what we carry for debt. So even though the federal deficit has dropped by two-thirds because of the economy during the current presidential administration, we're just fixed in this this battle. On the Perkins loan, we did have a bipartisan bill last week that got out. We, I was concerned about it. I led uh, a letter to Speaker Boehner uh, from the Congression, for the California delegation just talking about how important that was to this institution and other California institutions. So fortunately, we did get a bipartisan partisan bill that restores the Perkins loans, at least for the next year. So I think there's a sense that it's the right thing to do. Um, getting the Congress to act on that is um, more of a challenge than I, I thought. And I would imagine the way you want to finance this is not something that most Republicans find uh, acceptable. Yes, that's true. How's that for a succinct <laughs> answer? <laughs> um, so... Uh, Associate Vice Chancellor DeLuca, what are some of the other things that people are thinking about to try to make the student loan system work better? Uh, You know, we're always looking to simplify the financial aid process for students. Uh, I think we try to talk about... in our office, some of the different types of loans that are available to students and our own um, analysis of the types of loans we'd encourage students to, to borrow if they need to borrow. So we talk about green light loans, which are um, federally subsidized and supported loans that are directly for students. We talk about yellow light loans, which um, may be available to some students. They're called PLUS loans or parent loans. And those may be uh, advantageous for some students who need to borrow beyond the student's borrowing capability. Um, and then we talk about red light loans, which we consider to be private loans, loans that are um, uh, provided by private lenders. These are not subsidized. They don't have ability to refinance. There's no income-based repayment options for students. We don't defer interest that's gained during the life of the loan. So uh, we're working to educate students and understand that there are different types of loans that may be available to them uh, so that they aren't concerned about loans they may have heard of, particularly in the private lending space, that feel maybe more risky, um, we would concur in that space and encourage students to, t- to look at their options that are available through the federal financial aid Do we aid have any students who are forced for various reasons to go to the private loans, what you call the red light loans? Yeah, I think that um, you know some students um, make those choices, maybe not fully understanding all of the options that are available. Um, I think there are very few students who find those as loans of last resort where they've tapped out all of their other options. Um, we don't see very you know more than a handful of students every year 
who are in that space. More often, it's just uh, not a full set of education about what's available. And so their families may have been contacted by private lenders directly, and they see this as an option, um, sort of like a credit card or other kind of consumer lending. And instead of exploring the options that uh, may be available through federal aid, and you know, part of that barrier, I think, it, I think it's great that you're writing your thesis about FAFSA. Is that there's a lot of um, mythology and stress around FAFSA and filing FAFSA, and so I think some families feel like if that's the path to these um, federal loans, then then we're not going to partake because there it's is such a simplification a effort afoot for FAFSA, trying to Indeed. make it much simpler. Yes, Anthony, could you say a little more about the students who get them who get into trouble, and what do you think is going on there? What what are the issues that you see? when you talk with them? Specifically with uh, student loans? With student loans, yeah. yes. Um, I think a number of students are just confused by where they should go to seek help. Right? Like, so if you're talking about financial aid on our campus, you can come to our financial aid office. There are people designated there to help you. Uh, especially, I think, when students graduate, there's no clear path to go to um, for when you need help with your student loans. I know that there's a lot of efforts uh, up, in, up in D.C. right now to kind of work on centralizing these systems, but right now students, I think, are confused with the different loans that they borrowed and tracking the history of that while they've been in school um, and managing different kinds of plans. Mm-hmm. Can you, so, and you hinted at, the, the, what's the larger set of problems that you see for students right now on the Berkeley campus and, in terms of supporting themselves and, uh, and maybe their families in some cases? I mean, what, just to give us a, some, some sense of the individual stories, that I think it would be very important to know. Uh, so I'm an independent student, um, and so I'm actually uh, outreaching to other financially independent students for the mm-hmm. first time on this campus that, that this has been happening. Um, and so there are some really unique issues. We, our university across the UCs have been working to address food insecurity. Um, a number of students are having a difficult time managing to pay for tuition, uh, rent, especially in an area like the Bay Area, um, while right. uh, being able to eat healthily. Um, another issue that I found uniquely among independent students, a lot of these are formerly homeless students or students from the foster care system uh, experience homelessness during winter breaks when the dorms close. Um, so there are a number of issues that students face because of unique situations that I, I know that our, our offices are trying to work on, but uh, there are gaps that need to be filled. Can you say something about how we can fill those gaps? Or? Yes, I think um, Anthony's done a good job of raising some issues that we're working on right now. Um, With regard to food insecurity, um, there's been a campus-wide effort and then a UC effort to look at um, how to address students who are food insecure. Uh, So we do, uh, we have two things that we're working on right now. One is a food pantry on campus. It's actually just off the edge of campus at Stiles Hall, and that's available to any current student, undergraduate, graduate, professional student, their families, um, to be able to pick up um, nutritious foods um, just by presenting their ID card, uh, and um, that's been in place for about a year now. Uh, and then we also have a supplemental uh, meal program through financial aid. So for students who come into the financial aid office and um, present the challenges they're having around food security, we can actually add additional meal points to their um, points plan and help uh, them across um, breaks across weekends, um, places where the meal plan doesn't really stretch right now, but we can provide points that can be spent either on campus, on the uh, campus food uh, options, or any place that takes that Cal One card. So places like Chipotle and Jamba Juice and all of those things off campus. So um, we're looking to, to find ways to, to take some of the financial aid dollars we have and bridge them in very specific spaces mm-hmm. uh, where students are presenting these challenges. Carson, do you think that members of Congress understand that these kinds of problems exist out at universities, even a, a place where you might think uh, there wouldn't be problems like UC Berkeley? I mean, this you would think, oh, beautiful Berkeley, how could it be so? You know, I don't, I don't think, um, I think there are too many members who don't understand the urgency, just the conversation preceding this question about um, students at an institution like this is perfectly understandable. If you've gotten emancipated from the foster care system and you've done everything right to get in here, and during a break you don't have a place to go because you're emancipated and you don't have you don't have the income. So I think it's the sense there isn't a sense of urgency, and then I don't think there's a full understanding of how important this is for the for the country's future and um, for the investment. And let me just say for on the for-profits, who are one of the contributing factors to this, if we took that money out of the for-profit 
um, schools and had it more available to you, we'd have a lot more money available. So what we did in the legislature while I was still there, and it was a huge heavy lift that had been tried multiple times, was at least get a bill passed that's had an impact and had an impact on Corinthian colleges going bankrupt, was that they had to comply we connected their marketing with what their actual outcomes were. So their graduation rates, what people were earning when they were getting out. And it was sort of a clever way um, as part of these discussions of calling their bluff. So what's happened is there's less money available for those. At the federal level, we hadn't been able to get enough support to do something similar, but that would really help as well. Is there a growing realization that the for-profits have engaged in uh predatory practices. It's really impossible to describe them in any other way and that they're not necessarily delivering a very good product? Or is there belief in the sort of ideology of the, the profit sector can always do better than the nonprofit uh, sector or the government sector? Um, there's that, which is hard to, hard to think that anybody would still consider trickle-down economic, economics to work and the private sector is always the best. Um, and then, to be perfectly honest, if you looked at where campaign contributions came from, um, when I was in the legislature, it was pretty obvious that members who didn't want to vote to put more restrictions on the for-profits, I, I think it was pretty obvious to me that they were impacted. We're all impacted, and it's one of our big problems, as we know. We should have publicly financed um, campaigns, but the influence of money in a specific group um, of people, in this instance, for-profit corporations, were basically threatening members that if you vote for this bill, um, we will come after you. Uh, so let's open it up to the audience. Uh, and if you have a question, I think we have somebody with a microphone. Elise, we've got two people with microphones. So raise your hand and somebody will come with a microphone. Please make your question short and to the point and not a speech. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this question is, Specifically to the congressman, but I'd be interested in hearing um, everyone's thoughts. So Dean Brady started off uh, this panel by talking about the economic value um, of a college education. And so uh, I want to know, um, do you think that uh, in, in the discourse of higher education, um, that making economic arguments rather than uh, social or m moral arguments, um, one, what effect do you think that that has had on government policy and a congressional debate, and then two, oh, how do you think that has affected public perception of higher education? I think it's the most important debate we should have. It's, it's, it should be bipartisan, because we know all the research tells us in a knowledge-based economy, as I said, that access to higher education, whether it's a bachelor's degree or a master's degree, um, is going to help the entire economy. I think the statistic is you get 15 cents for every dollar you spend on education, a larger economy. Um, I started a caucus in uh, the legislature called EPIC, Ending Poverty and Inequality in California, because we've got as bad as it is nationally, um, it's worse in California. 25% um, of the population now falls in into the federal description of poverty. So if you want disadvantaged kids to be able to have opportunity, which is what this country is based on, it has to be through education. We know we had uh, University of California at Davis is the center for the UC system for research on poverty, and there's a college down on the peninsula that is also does research on this, um, and is one of three institutions nationally that are recognized by the federal government as research facilities on poverty. And what they came up with when we asked them just for a simple master plan on what we can do on inequality and, and, and poverty in California, the overwhelming research said the long-term strategy is to invest in higher education. Let, let me say, though, that paradoxically, the fact that there are such great returns to higher education has led some people to say, well, if there are such great returns and individuals get so much out of, out of higher education, why should the government sector pay for that? Let them pay for it individually. What's missing and... and and a mistake in that is that there is the issue of equity, making sure that everybody actually has a chance to get higher education. And if we don't have more government funding, we know we're going to have less uh, uh, chance for people of low income and get higher education. The second big mistake is actually on their own terms they're wrong because it turns out that higher education not only gets you a higher income, it makes you less likely to engage in behaviors that are going to lead you into welfare, into food stamps, into jail, and all sorts of other things, which cost governments money. 
So I did a study with some other people, Mike Howd and John Stiles, about a decade ago and then redid it about four or five years ago, where we showed that for every dollar the state of California invests in higher education, they get $4.50 back. By the way, the comparable figure right now for criminal justice looks like for every dollar we invest in criminal justice, we probably get 10 cents to 20 cents back. Uh, that's not a good investment, in case it wasn't obvious. Well, and if you're, you're a client of the California Department of Corrections, the, the um, recidivism rate in California was, when I was in the legislature, 73%. So that's not a good outcome. So we're throwing money away into corrections, not getting much... Uh, at the margin, diminution in crime, because the truth is we're putting people behind bars whose risks of committing crimes are very, very low, and the crimes they do commit are typically property crimes or drug-related crimes, uh, which are problematic, but not ones for which it makes really a lot of sense to put them behind bars. There's other ways to deal with those kinds of crimes. So we've got really a cockeyed policy. There are reasons for government subsidy of higher education simply because we make the whole society a better place. And I'm not even counting the fact that people who go to college tend to vote vote more, tend to be much more involved in their community, uh, tend to be people who actually give a lot back to the society. So there's just lots of reasons to invest in higher education. But again, I don't think the urgency is there. I, I don't know how you convey that urgency to a majority of members of Congress or multiple state legislatures either. I think too often academics is considered some elite thing that, you know, should do it on its own. And in a state like California, that's just crazy. The, CS, the UC system and the CSU system and the community college system is what's made this state so remarkable in many ways. Absolutely. So as um, many of you are aware, the Higher Education Act reauthorization is coming up in Congress. And um, you mentioned earlier about the simplification of the FAFSA form. I think we all are want to read Anthony's paper yes. to figure out how it should be done. <laughs> but, um, yeah. I, I'll do it as a bill, Anthony. <laughs> <laughs> So one of the things about simplifying uh, FAFSA would be that many more people would be eligible for student financial aid. Um, and one of the things that people seem to be concerned about with the Higher Education Act reauthorization is that you're growing the pot of potential borrowers, but perhaps not the money invested in it. So I'd love to get your thoughts about, as we go to looking towards the HEA reauthorization, what are the things we need to keep in mind? Love to hear everyone's thoughts. Well, I'm, what I'm afraid is on the reauthorization, so we have lots of needs, both at the local, state, and the, particularly at the federal level. One big reauthorization is a subject that I spent a lot of time in, other than education, is transportation. We have dire need. After education, economists will tell you infrastructure is probably the second most important thing. And we're thing. a form of infrastructure, too. Yes, I mean, it's yeah, actually right. human infrastructure and physical infrastructure, right. and both are needed. Yeah. So what the majority party wants to do is so that they don't have to confront the no new taxes phenomenon that they've generally all agreed to is is to take offsets. So you're just taking money from existing accounts and there's not enough there to pay for the needs that we have. So at some point, the bigger question is how can you get um, Republicans to remember that Ronald Reagan actually supported raising taxes in instances and that you can be a conservative and still support raising raising taxes. Unfortunately, and the dean knows this better than I, we've gotten this political dialogue where the measurement of getting reelected in some parts of the country are your absolute adherence to a pledge that says you should never raise taxes. So that's the bigger challenge. So most likely what we'll do with higher education, unless this leadership thing's changed, maybe, maybe next, in October, um, Nancy Pelosi will get elected in spite of the fact that we have a minority uh, because they can't decide on somebody. Um, but then we, to, in order to get members to vote to raise revenue is a, is a real challenge until there's a change in the makeup of the, of the Congress, I think. Sorry to be pessimistic. Well, and the basic problem is that at the state level, we keep getting crowded out by increases in health care costs, increases in corrections costs. And everybody sort of likes higher education, but unfortunately, it's not their first priority. And so, therefore, we're down the list and we're not high enough so that we actually get much attention. And furthermore, there's the feeling... It's a cynical feeling on the part of some state legislators. Actually, I'd like to ask you if I've got this right, but I think it's, there's a feeling, well, gee, CSU and UC can actually raise tuition. We have the power to tax, so why don't we use that power to tax and get them off the hook from having to raise taxes on their own? Is, 
Is there some I, truth, I think, do you think? I that? think the problem in, in the legislature, to go back to my old job, is that you're, you have a supermajority requirement mm -hmm. to raise revenue. So in this, con I mean, we, we changed things and made it better because of an initiative that Senator Hancock led where we could pass a budget with a simple majority, as you know. Right. But it's, the polling didn't show that we could do the other part of that, which is to raise revenue with a simple majority, which I always argued states that have a simple majority generally have a better credit rating than, mm -hmm. than California, and the credit agencies will actually point to that. So we're, we're, we're blocked and we have to keep making arguments. On the correction side, we did have um, Prop 47 that the voters passed and um, AB 109, which we had to pass because the Supreme Court to told us we had to get 50,000 of our inmates out of the system. And so far that's working. So some of the things you mentioned. And realignment in general. Right. A, a bunch of Goldman School faculty members actually are very involved yes. in trying to figure out ways to make realignment work. And there's a lot to be said for trying to do that and reduce the number of people in prison uh, and therefore maybe open up some money in the budget. Anthony, I, ha I wanted to ask you, what are you doing with this senior thesis? Sounds very interesting. So what, what are you looking at with respect to FAFSA? Because it is a concern on the part of many that FAFSA is so complicated that it really discourages people from applying. There is the simplification in the works. Are you looking at that? Uh, so actually, I'm look so I have a data set which uh, in describes uh, FAFSA completion rates by schools throughout the state of California. Um, and so I'll be comparing FAFSA completion to student demographics at these schools, right? So uh, if you have a large percentage of English language learners, how does that, that affect FAFSA completion? If you have a large percentage of uh, uh, differently abled students, how does that affect FAFSA completion? And uh, similarly, I'll also be comparing FAFSA completion rates to available resources um, in high schools. So if there are nonprofit programs or state-sponsored programs which specifically target um, low-income school districts and assist those students with getting ready to go to college and filling out the FAFSA, how does that kind of uh, remedy like lower FAFSA completion rates? You should think of public policy school. I am. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, uh, uh, people in the audience laughed when the word data was mentioned. I think they were laughing at the fact that they know that uh, I tell the story of how I once had a dinner party at home and my wife said, what brought these people together? And I said, they all love data. <laughs> so I am peculiar. A great yeah, it was a fabulous <laughs> dinner. <laughs> Nothing like data to make a great dinner party. But... Uh, I will, I will also say that um, a recent decision um, by President Obama to allow uh, FAFSA filers to use prior prior year tax information mm -hmm. should also help without having to simplify the FAFSA because um, it's much more likely that students and families will have their taxes completed. Mm -hmm. And um, the FAFSA now has a lot of actual uh, auto-skip logic that's incorporated in it. So uh, based on the import information that you would have around your taxes, you may be able to skip multiple questions that don't apply to you in your family's financial situation. So I think there are a number of things that have been implemented in the last few years to help um, support the ease of completion, even though there are still more than two questions, which is sort of where everyone tries to boil the FAFSA down to two questions. But the ability to use prior prior year tax information should really make a difference. And we're hopeful it will make a difference in the number of students who, who complete FAFSA for um, the 17-18 school year. So, Congressman, there's a, a book that was written that said when innovations occur, often it, the, it requires the confluence of a bunch of things. One is the politics has to be right. The other thing is that there have to be policy ideas out mm -hmm. there. So maybe the politics aren't quite right right now for what you're proposing. Uh, so are you, is part of what you're thinking of, let's get some ideas out there, mm -hmm. let's get people starting to think about them, and then when maybe the stars do align and the politics get better, we'll have a chance to get this kind of legislation through? Well, I, you probably remember this. Madison said that um, the inability to politically figure out a pathway to get legislation passed shouldn't inhibit a legislator in, a, in the United States from trying something so that you, you try it. And uh, one of the things I miss about the California legislature is we get accused of doing crazy things in California, but we also do amazingly innovative things in, in the business world and in the political world. Um, I generally think uh, the old expression about Congress is, uh, welcome to Congress. This is the place where good ideas come to die. Um, <laughs> And there's a wisdom to that, I suppose, by the founders is that, you know, you've got to have a process so uh, you don't get the crazy things. I just think the culture in California allows for more of this kind of thinking. And, and it's bipartisan in many instances, um, not as bipartisan as I would like. In D.C., um, there's just 
uh, a resistance that is unfortunately somewhat bipartisan for new ideas, for giving them a try. But on education, it's just a national sin because to the argument uh, about what it, what kind of what do you want to invest in the economy, re- the majority party likes, likes to talk about dynamic scoring in the budget. Well, here's an example where they don't want to talk about dynamic scoring. Is that here's uh, here's a place where the investment really stimulates the economy, and it's this isn't a guess. This isn't subjective. The research is pretty rich. Research is very very strong, and. Um I hope this doesn't sound partisan, but I think it's just a fact. Some of the dynamic scoring that people like Donald Trump are talking about is is close to fantasy, if not pure fantasy. I mean, there's just no evidence that the kind of growth that he's talking about is even vaguely possible, uh, given what he's talking about. And, and there's been episodes where we've tried to do things along the lines of what he's proposed, uh, but sadly they've had nowhere near the kind of impact that he's talking about. Some of it requires that basically... Uh, you invest a dollar and a whole lot of new stuff just suddenly comes online in ways that just doesn't really make much well, sense. Well, he was a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania, so what would he know? The Wharton School. <laughs> he's fond of telling us that it's the best business school in the nation. Right. So, And he's the best business student in the nation, I'm sure, as well. I'm sure. And he got in there because of the merits of right. his background. Right. Anyway, <laughs> we shouldn't go down this yes, road too yes. far. <laughs> it's, it's not a road. It's a vortex. Does anybody have a final question? Um, I want to give a chance for one more. Yes. Thank you for uh, putting this together, and thanks for coming to speak on this. Um, one thing that's come up pretty recently is uh, President Obama's plan a couple of years ago. He put forth in the State of the Union for a free community college. And I know Senator Sanders has a bill right now to make uh, to get rid of the practice of charging tuition in the United States. And I'm glad that that conversation is finally coming back. And I just want to ask you right now, of course, it's not very politically feasible, but what's it going to take to get that back into the discussion to being politically feasible, feasible to getting that to the top of the agenda at the federal level? I, I think the president, I mean, I, I would bet that his advisors didn't tell him this is going to be smooth sailing, but that's why I brought it up in, in a venue like the State of the Union. So in terms of convincing Americans and convincing Americans in districts that um, the member is somewhat being reflective of his constituents or maybe more in not investing in higher education. I mean, California is a great example of the master plan for higher education that people who can't afford to get to UC can transfer. Um, and what a remarkable thing it's done for the state. So community colleges are a, a huge and a, another good investment. So I think the fact he brought it up wasn't that he thought it was going to happen right away, but that but you have to stay with the message, I think, to keep convincing people that this is a good investment. And it's the future of the country. It's not just about you individually. It's about the future of this country and where we stand in a knowledge-based economy. We're not going to have manufacturing like we used to. We're not going back that. It's just not possible. So how do we get people who can be part of this innovation that will go on through your lifetimes and get rewarded in wages and benefits that will be able to stimulate the economy? Well, that's a great summation, and I want to thank this panel. I want to thank Anthony for bringing the student perspective and DeLuca for bringing the perspective of a financial aid person and, of course, Congressman DeSaulnier for trying to uh, joust at this windmill, and let's hope uh, eventually you succeed in getting better ways of dealing with student debt. I have one thing I forgot, and I have a, my communications director in Washington is a graduate of this institution, so he will absolutely punish me if I don't mention. He wants, if any of you want to make comments, I guess, on video that we could use um, as to your own personal experience, a graduate of the University of California in Berkeley and 3,000 miles away would like you to do that. Great, which sounds like a great idea, because I think the personal stories really do help us understand uh, what's at stake here and that... Uh, The numbers are nice, but this other stuff's important. So thank you very much for everybody being here. Thank you. Thank you.